a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. So glad you could join us today. I'm happy to welcome Eric Peters from epautos.com. we got some great stuff to discuss today. So let's dive right in. Hey, Eric, welcome to the show. Glad to have great you on board back. once again. Great to be back, Brian. I'm assuming that you're not afflicted by the holy fog. Uh, you know, I only understand this because I read your recent article on uh, <laughs> on distracted drivers. And this this is probably a good place to start. I've been doing a lot more driving than usual the last few weeks with moving and traveling. And uh, d- anyway, yeah, let's let's bring our listeners up to speed. When you talk about the holy fog, what is going on there? Well, it's the state of being kind of just confused and not able to focus that apparently a lot of people are experiencing after receiving their holy anointing. Uh, I have been noticing more of this over the course of roughly the last three weeks or four weeks or so, which is coincident to the mass needling, the mass anointing of the populace. We've always had people who drove slightly slow, slightly below the posted speed limit, right at the speed limit, Uh, And, of course, that was kind of tedious, and you waited for an opportunity to get around those people. But lately, it seems as soon as you leave your driveway, you're you're stuck behind somebody who's going 15, even 20 miles an hour below the speed limit. I posted a number of videos about this. It seems to be everywhere. At first, I thought it was just in my area for one reason or another. But when I posted my article, I received a lot of replies from people all over the country who said they're seeing the same thing. Now, I know correlation is not necessarily causation, but I do think it's interesting that we're seeing an epidemic of really slow driving all of a sudden. That is true. And, and you know, I look, I'm, I don't claim to be the world's uh, best driver, but I do like to pride myself on, I pay attention to what's going on around me. I'm, I'm aware, and I feel like that's the least I can do for, for my fellow citizens out there on the highways. But I, I get frustrated when I see people who are just, I don't know, they're in, they are in a haze. They're not mm-hmm. really aware. They're just kind of behind the wheel. And then, Oh, oh, I mm-hmm. guess there's something I should pay attention to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not just the slow driving. It's erratic driving, uh, which is, of course, unsafe driving. You These people who will drift across the center line into the opposing lane of traffic or they'll, they'll break at random for no reason. Uh, and then they'll accelerate again for no apparent reason. And, you know, almost as if they're asleep and somebody poked them in the rib and said, hey, pay attention. It's very weird. Yeah, it's um, we were we were very fortunate uh, a few years ago. Uh, my wife was involved in a crash that uh, that was unfortunately entirely preventable. And it was one of those instances where she was driving down the interstate, you know, 75, 80 miles an hour and failed to recognize that uh, a vehicle towing a trailer in front of her was going really slow, like maybe mm-hmm. 40 miles an hour. And, mm-hmm. and because she wasn't focused, you know, ahead of her and, and seeing what was approaching, by the time she got up on it, she overreacted, overcorrected, mm-hmm. and went into the guardrail, spun out. Mm-hmm. Our car caught fire from the airbags. Oh, my God. She was, she was uninjured except for a couple small burns on her wrists. But, I mean, the car was totaled. And, yeah. And she got a ticket, you know, for, for failure to, to see what was coming. 
Yeah, you, know, you and I talked a little bit before the program went live about the, the roots of this, and I've taken a number of high-performance driving courses in my time, and one of the, the, the things that they teach you initially before you even go out on the track is to look where you're headed, not where you are. And um, unfortunately, that isn't being taught to people any longer. And so they fixate on what's immediately in front of them. They don't look down the road. They don't anticipate the need to get out of the way of something. You know, for example, a car entering traffic or pulling out from a side road or something of that nature. So when it does pull out in front of them, they're not prepared for it, and then they're startled by it. And, of course, it takes a split-second judgment to do something. And often that split-second judgment is an incorrect one, and it's an overcorrecting one with results such as the one that your wife experienced. Okay, so I'm going to ask you a loaded question, Eric, knowing mm-hmm. full well that you are one of the most dedicated proponents of freedom that I know. Mm-hmm. But I've got to ask you, should it be harder to get a driver's license? I mean, like akin to what mm-hmm. Germany requires of, of its citizens before they are issued a driver's license? Yeah, you know, this is a very interesting topic. I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago. Now, in principle, I don't like the idea of having gov- having to get government permission in order to use the public thoroughfare. But let's set that aside for a moment and talk about driver's licenses, which they aren't. You know, they're essentially IDs. IDs. They have absolutely nothing to do with with um, being a measure of your competence to operate a motor vehicle. I think if we're going to have driver's licenses, let's make them actually about competence and having to reach a certain minimum threshold of ability before you're entrusted with uh, going out there with a 3,000-pound car uh, and driving. It's quite ironic. In, in many states that have concealed carry permits, you have to take a course. Some of these are actually live-fire courses where you have to show that you're capable of competently handling a gun before you're allowed to handle a gun. And, of course, we have all of this uh, stuff going on with uh, sickness kabuki, you know, because we have to do this in order to keep everybody safe. But we let literally anybody who can push a button to start the engine and then push another button to put it into gear take a vehicle out on the road when they may not be competent to do that safely. See, like you, I I don't like the idea of going to the state with my hat in my hand and begging, please, may I drive? Mm-hmm. Um, that That's, you know, really distasteful to me. But I can't argue the fact that when I was driving in Germany... Um, the Autobahn was actually one of the most pleasant places I've ever driven just because there was competence. Every driver I encountered right. had competence. That's because it's very difficult, as you know, to get a driver's license in Germany, at least relative to here. You have to take extensive training, and then there's extensive on-road testing before you get that license, whereas here, literally, any warm body that can get, what is it, 20 out of 30 questions about traffic laws uh, right at the, at the kiosk at the DMV is given a, and I put it in air finger quotes to emphasize the ir- irony of it, a driver's license. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you weighing in on this, and, and I'm just going to tell you, I'm jealous that uh, you've had these performance driving courses. I, I don't know that they're for everybody, but a guy can dream, right? Well, yeah, and I will say this, too, to people who have uh, teenagers who are getting ready to, to, to drive on their own. Even though these courses can be pretty pricey, you know, two, three thousand dollars in some cases, they're worth it. If you think about uh, the the skill and the ability that it imparts, and the respect for vehicle dynamics, and how much is your kid's life worth to you? If your kid acquires the skill and the competence to avoid an accident, I think that's money well spent. No, I I would definitely agree. Since we're talking automotive stuff in this segment, uh, let me just ask you this. Um, I know you get to test drive cars. You Mm -hmm. get to write reviews about them. 
you uh, you have mentioned to me that you're, you're seeing a lot of crossover SUVs. <laughs> is that is that just the thing, or is that that uh, uh, is that a commentary on our society and what we're becoming? Well, kind of, yeah. I, I refer to them tongue in cheek as the UTM or the Universal Trans or UTA U- Universal Transportation Appliance. Uh, they're everywhere. They're replacing sedans. Sedans are going away. Mazda, for example, is the most recent to announce that they're canceling their six sedan. And in favor of that, just building crossovers. I don't think GM makes any cars anymore other than the Camaro and the Corvette. Uh, same with Ford. I don't think Ford makes any cars anymore other than the Mustang. The rest of them are all crossovers. And part of it has to do uh, with all these government regulations that effectively you know, winnow things down and dictate vehicle design and also which have eliminated a lot of kinds of cars like the big sedans that we used to drive when we were younger and that our parents drove. And so now you have these smaller cars that aren't really very practical for a family, so you know, people get into these crossovers which have the merit of being practical and roomy for their size, but they're so homogenous. They're all the same. Do you remember the original Godfather where Sonny gets mowed down and, uh, and, and then uh, the Godfather goes to see the mortician and he says... I want you to use all your skill and your talents, you know, to make him look good for the funeral. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that when I'm writing about these crossover SUVs, because you know, every, every week I'm coming up, I'm having to come up with two thousand words uh, of something to say about these things. And since they're so similar, sometimes it's very hard. Well, this one has a 12.3 inch LCD touchscreen, and that one has an 11.2 inch LCD touchscreen. Ooh! Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I see. I see your dilemma, and and by the way, I I was just reading the other day. I thought I'd get your comment on this. Is it true Ford is going to be making more electric Mustangs than gas-powered Mustangs as they go forward? Well, you know the interesting thing about that, and actually, I'm glad you mentioned it. I I need to write something about that. Yeah, the media was touting that uh, Ford will produce more of its Mach E electric crossover SUV than Mustangs, but there's a difference between producing things and selling them. Gotcha. So I, I don't doubt that Ford is going to make a lot of these things. Now, whether people are going to buy them is another question, and it's not really a fair comparison anyway because a Mustang is a two-door specialty car. It's not a family car. It's not a practical car. It's a car that people buy because it's fun and they, you know, it, it's enjoyable and they like the way it looks. It would be much more fair to compare the, the production and sales figures of the Mach-E, which is a five-door crossover SUV, happens to be electric, but that's what it is, with a comparably sized crossover SUV, and then we have a better picture of what's really happening. Okay, hold that thought. Again, we're talking with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. Seriously, if you are thinking about any kind of vehicle, you're going to make a purchase, you should really go to his website and do some research there. We'll be back just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. Eric, I'm seeing some really encouraging things as I am out and about in society. Number one, I see a lot less masks, and that, mm-hmm. that includes on employees of various businesses. Yep, and I'm I'm feeling encouraged by this. I mean, it's uh, there's there's a strong sense that hey, things are starting to relax. I see this happening in other states across the country. California, of course, the exception. Gavin Newsom's mm-hmm. going to hang on to that uh, state of emergency for a little bit longer. But I have a concern, and my concern is this: 
during the summer months, I mean, last summer, did we not see um, the, the rate of COVID infections drop as mm-hmm. sunlight acted as disinfectant, mm-hmm. so to speak, and then, sure. then come back up when cold and flu season, you know, hit us, you know, starting in, sure. in fall? I'm just curious, what, to, what will the reaction be? Are the lockdowners going to want to lock it down even harder when, when there's another resurgence in, in sickness? Oh, you know they will. You know, we, we know the answer to that question before, they, before we even ask it. Of course they will, because they've been absolutely hystericized about sickness, any kind of sickness. And they've been taught to equate these, this, this cases business with actual sickness and even death, whereas we all know that just that you happen to have tested positive on a case uh, on, for, for, this, for this virus, which may indicate nothing more than you have some remnants of the viral material in your, in your system and you're perfectly healthy and you're certainly not going to die, uh, it's, it's ridiculous to be terrified of that. But that's what they want is to keep everybody perpetually terrified for the sake of perpetual control. Well, let's let's talk about the old mantra, my body, my choice. Mm-hmm. We've, we've heard this in a number of different uh, incarnations and different political causes, but uh, let's talk about it as it pertains to the vaccination, because, boy, the push is mm-hmm. on. We've got to get this many vaccinations by July mm-hmm. 4th, says the president. I yawn and go back to what I was doing. Yeah, I juxtaposed it with the abortion issue, um, because it is mostly people on the hard left who are most belligerently pro-choice, as they put it, uh, and who are also at the same time the most belligerently you will get vaccinated uh, and who want to see things like the vaccine passports, who want to make it so that you won't be able to come back to your job or get a job or go to a concert unless you have proof of jab. Now, I find that interesting because the premise of their argument with regard to abortion, their right to terminate um, their unborn child, is it's my body, and therefore it's my choice. But when you or I say, well, it's my body, and I'd rather not risk terminating myself, somehow it's not really our body anymore. And I just think it points out the hypocrisy, the cognitive dissonance of these people who hold these two mutually exclusive views. Well, yeah, it is interesting how, how situational it becomes. I mean, this is this is part and parcel of all the mass protests taking place a year ago, and yet uh, no one could wag a finger at them and say, well, now they're violating all the protocols of people being separated mm-hmm. and not staying home. I guess, you know, if you, if you have the right political cause behind you, apparently you are impervious to reality. Well, it's not reality. It's, it's simply that they want what they want, and whatever excuse they can come up with, for the moment, to justify it, they'll use. And when that excuse no longer works, they'll come up with another excuse. They're fundamentally very dishonest people, I think, um, because they won't admit that. They won't concede uh, a logical point. You know, if you, if you say, well, I have got a right to an abortion because it's my body, then logically, if you're honest, then you have a right to not have your body violated uh, against your will by the injection of a substance that may cause you harm. And even if it doesn't cause you harm, the principle is the same. It's the difference between consensual sex and rape, right? No, Your body is being good violated. Good example. So I, I, I'd be curious to hear what, uh, what you're hearing from, from people in your circles who have uh, so far successfully resisted the vaccination. What kind of pressure is being brought to bear on them? Well, my circle's a little bit smaller and a little bit different. It's, it's probably composed of people more like yourself and myself uh, who are very much opposed to all of this and have been from the, from the get-go and who have not put on the holy rag and will not. 
accept the holy jab. However, um, there's no doubt that the pressure is being brought to bear. I have a number of readers who have posted and then told me privately also these very tragic stories um, about family members, close friends, uh, essentially saying that they won't associate with them any longer uh, unless they receive the holy needle. A very good friend of mine wanted to take his uh, daughter up to see their aunt and uncle, and this aunt and uncle said that they absolutely are not welcome there unless they receive their holy needling, notwithstanding that this aunt and uncle have been needled themselves, and so presumably they're safe, and yet they insist that everybody else get needled too. Interesting. And, and, and I'm seeing also uh, the, the people who persist in wearing masks, you know, while driving alone or, mm-hmm. or doing things that, that really don't put them, you know, in close proximity to anybody, let alone to the sick. It, it's, mm-hmm. it, there, there seems to be a kind of, uh, I don't know, it's, it's like Linus in his blanket. This is the security factor. I just, I just feel better when I put on my mask. Sure. Sure, and the one good thing about the relaxation of the mandates that pressured a lot of people to put the thing on uh, reluctantly, they didn't want to, but they did because they wanted to be able to go shopping or go to work or whatever, is that we're back to where we were uh, around this time last year where you could see the crazies, you know, the, the ones that were wearing the, the holy rag. You knew right away these people are not quite right in the head. Uh, they're, they're mentally ill, just like, you know, you went back two years ago and you saw Michael Jackson and you kind of pitied the guy. So now we can kind of check out and see who the really nutty people are. But the, the thing that concerns me is that a lot of the nutty people are now incognito again. You know, they've gotten their holy jabs, and that hasn't cured them of their fear. And when the fear organ starts to play again this fall, as I suspect that it will, <laughs> they, you know, they're, they're going to point the finger at, uh, at us, at the people who haven't been needled, notwithstanding that we haven't given anybody anything because we haven't got anything. But they're going to blame us for the cases, the cases going up again. And I think that's when the pressure will uh, increase markedly and probably even the laws will change such that they try to uh, cajole and then force those of us who are not interested in being injected to get injected or else. I think anybody who, who doubts you know, what this can lead to or who, who poo-poos the idea that there, there's something wrong with this approach of, well, we just got a mandate and force everybody to do this. Mm-hmm. They really should take a close look at what's been happening in Australia. That, mm-hmm. That's probably the most dystopian example I can point to. And, and it continues. Even though the cases are at, at an all-time mm-hmm. low, um, man, they are still locking them down hard and, and punishing people with state force who dare defy what, uh, you know, the bureaucrats are saying. Yeah, what's particularly alarming to me is it's not China. You know, we're talking about Australia. We're talking about Canada. These are uh, nominally Western uh, countries. And you know, supposedly you'd think uh, a tradition of reasonableness and respect for individual autonomy and proportionality. And they are literally sending body-armored goons with guns to tackle and handcuff and drag away people who are uh, not obeying the lockdown orders or, or going out in public showing their face. And uh, the fact that that has happened indicates where this could go. And it could certainly go that way in this country as well. And I dread it. And, and of course, with, with uh, Fauci's emails coming out and, and we learned that, uh, hey, he wasn't exactly playing straight with the truth. I, I don't know how a person who at least is trying to be objective couldn't come away with the conclusion this was all about control. It always mm-hmm. was about control. Yes, at the very least, and this is giving him an incredible benefit of the doubt, uh, Fauci is grotesquely incompetent 
How many times has this guy been been way wrong, way off base, and yet he's still given a platform and a megaphone and treated respectfully uh, by the press and by the media? It's outrageous. Uh, I you know I just I don't understand it except for the fact that he is a facilitator of this agenda of control. And uh, he's become sort of the pope of sickness psychosis. That's why I call him Pope Fauci the 18th. Well, at the risk of, uh, you know, of alienating some people, any guy who throws a baseball the way Fauci threw a baseball last year yeah. should be suspect. I mean, that should just be right on its face. Eric, Absolutely. thank you so much for spending some time with me and with our listeners. Um, appreciate it. Where can people find your website? Uh, well, they can go to www.epautos.com, and it's the web's best libertarian gearhead site because I think it's the only libertarian gearhead site on the web. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out to our sponsors, including MonticelloCollege.org. If you check out yesterday's show notes, that would be uh, June 7th, 2021. You'll find that uh, I did interview Dr. Shannon Brooks from Monticello College. Great conversation with him about the new economy. Also, thanks to HSLAmmo.com. And a quick shout out to Pure-Light.com. These are the most amazing light bulbs. If you have ever thought, you know, I should probably drop $1,000 or more on a good quality air purifier to make sure that I'm taking care of the different, uh, you know, different pathogens and chemicals and contaminants in, in the air in my home, even even food odors or pet odors, you know, a good, uh, good air purifier will take care of that. So will a uh, very quality light bulb like the ones made by pure-light.com. In fact, they do it for a whole lot less. And having put this to the test, I can tell you they do work. They absolutely work as advertised. Check out the links in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com and to tell them their advertising message is reaching you. I think most of us have heard some variation of how our nation was founded on Judeo-Christian principles. By the way, I do believe that. That doesn't mean they founded a theocracy, but I do think Judeo-Christian principles definitely informed the thinking and worldview of the founding generation. And thank goodness. But if someone were to ask you, well, uh, why don't you explain what those principles are? Could you do it? I could do a pretty halting shot at it. I'd give it the old college try, but I don't think I could give as clear or concise an explanation as Paul Rosenberg does. He has a terrific explanation of what those Judeo-Christian principles are, but more importantly, why they matter. He says, it's become common to speak of Judeo-Christian principles, but that also begs the question of precisely what those principles are. And not so long ago, he says, I searched for a clear set of them and came up dry. I found statements of religious beliefs, and I found lists of good habits that were spawned by Judeo-Christian principles, but he says, I didn't find the principles themselves. Nonetheless, a consistent set of Judeo-Christian principles held all through the run of Western civilization. And he says they remain even now as our civilization sputters towards either a defiant revival or a whimpering end. 
the principles of Judaism and Christianity empowered what was by far the most productive and moral civilization in recorded history. Yes, he says, with many failures, but with many fewer and smaller failures than any other major civilization. And he says, I think these principles are worthy of our time and more importantly are worthy of our action. So here is a list of Judeo-Christian principles that Paul Rosenberg has compiled. And I love how he starts. The very first one is, our relationship with the Creator is fundamentally personal. Paul Rosenberg says, to both Judaism and Christianity, the creature-creator relationship is fundamentally individual, not collective. Such a relationship means that each of us matters to the Creator. And by extension, the importance of which, w- the, the importance of which would be hard to overstress. This means that what we do matters. The actions of each person, male, female, young, old, whatever, all of them matter. The actions of our neighbors do not matter more than our own, and certainly not to the Creator. Here's the second principle. We carry free will. We are not slaves to fate, nor are we simply pre-programmed machines. We are free and individual moral agents. Our choices matter. The third principle is we are able to improve. The Bible, the central literary source of of Judeo-Christian development, continually features men and women who had changes of heart, providing examples of positive change most of all. That has taught billions of us that we are able to change positively, and the importance of this can hardly be overstressed. Next, power and rulership are antithetic to the Creator and antithetic to human progress. Now listen to what he's saying here because this is something I think we've forgotten. The Judeo-Christian God cares not for the high, but for the humble. He speaks not to the powerful, but to the powerless. Now, this is seen in the Bible from one end to the other, often explicitly. Now, granted, those who wish it were otherwise can pull out a few contrary passages, but a local creek hardly overpowers the mighty Mississippi. Justice stands above the ruler is the next principle. Over and over, the Judeo-Christian God thunders against kings and leaders. He demands justice, especially for the downtrodden. Next principle, the creator, the ultimate, is qualitatively good. Now, the rough parts of the Old Testament notwithstanding, and by the way, he has a link to the Discourses book that he's written on this for, for coverage of this. He says, the creator as good has been the message of Judaism for a very long time and has definitely extended through Christianity. If nothing else, this concept gave powerless people a way to prove their righteousness with God. The influence of their good God was visible in their goodness. It meant that they bore his impress, meaning his impression. Now, this was a terribly productive incentive, even if some number took it to odd places. Let me put it another way, and this is just my own translation of of what what I'm understanding from what Paul Rosenberg has written here. My faith in God has often been strengthened by people who have accurately reflected God's love toward me. Does that make sense? To some people it will, maybe to others it won't. But my point is people who really love their creator show by the way they treat other people, by the way they conduct themselves. And people who are at odds with their Creator will often show by their actions, by their language. 
that they are at odds, not just with him, but with, with everything and everyone that he's created. Here's another principle. We are obliged to our offspring, not them to us. So not only does the God of the Hebrews rage against children being made to pass through the fire to Moloch, but he frames his warnings in terms of what will happen to your children. Clearly, the needs of the child are shown as superior to the desires of the parents. This is one of the reasons why, when, uh, when you know, for instance, the Catholic Church, among others, stood up against same-sex marriage. It wasn't a matter of, well, we need to punish the gays because marriage was made to keep us happy and nobody else. Instead, what they were standing up for was the idea that marriage is primarily about the relationship in which children are sired and raised. Not just about companionship for any combination of adults. And that's not to mean that, therefore, you know, other adults can't have, you know, happiness. I think God wants us to be happy, but... The institution of marriage was primarily about children and providing a stable framework and a stable relationship in which they could be reared to productive adulthood. And I, I mean no slight you know, to, to my friends who are part of the LGBT community. Um, this, this is not a, a put down in any way. But no matter what same-sex couples do in the privacy of their home or in the privacy of their bedroom, the creation of life, the procreation of human life still happens as the result of a male-female pairing. And when that takes place in the context of a permanent relationship between a man and a woman committed to one another and committed to whatever offspring they have, that's where you find the greatest stability for their society. And by the way, it's a, it's a it's a template that is held through all kinds of different civilizations, great and small, primitive and advanced, throughout human history. It's only within recent years that we've decided, hey, we need to reinvent the wheel and, uh, you know, created all kinds of different classifications. Again, I'm not telling you that, you know, you can't be happy. But I am trying to make the case that people who stand up for, for instance, traditional marriage, aren't doing so out of a sense of, uh, you're different, therefore I must punish you. If we're obliged to our offspring and not them to us, that's a pretty serious Judeo-Christian principle. Also, a strong preference for production rather than plunder. From Abraham through the New Testament, Jewish and Christian writings assume they are addressing productive people, not plunderers. Jews and Christians never had anything like, as the Romans did, an altar of victory. So conquering resided in Judaism only in the sense of throwing off oppressors, not to become oppressors. And that certainly is a theme that continues with Christianity. How about this one? The ultimate is an individual. If the ultimate is an individual, if God is one, the holders of such an image become somewhat more willing to think as individuals and to find strength to stand alone. And that's a potent image for people to hold. Now, there are a couple more of these uh, principles, uh, these Judeo-Christian principles. I'm going to come back to them here in just a few moments. But I will have a link to this in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. And if you haven't subscribed to uh, Paul Rosenberg's weekly email through freemansperspective.com, ah, man, you are missing out. This guy has a very solid take on the world around us. More importantly, there's there's a love in his writing that I don't often find in other pundits, you know, the ones that are more 
partisan in their approach. I like how he says what he says. And whether I agree or not, it's always always worth considering. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, I'm sharing an article here from Paul Rosenberg. What are the Judeo-Christian principles? I don't know how many of these sounded familiar to you. This just in, in way of uh, review. Let's just walk back through a couple of them. Um, if I were asked to give a list, I don't think I would have included all of these, but these expound on things that I really do hold to be true. Things like our relationship with the Creator is fundamentally personal. We carry free will. We're able to improve. Power and rulership do not impress the Creator. And in fact, they can sometimes be antithetic to human progress. Justice stands above the ruler. The creator is the ultimate, is ultimately, or is qualitatively good. Therefore, we should be good. We are obliged to our offspring, not them to us. A strong preference for production rather than plunder. The ultimate is an individual. I mean, these, to, to me, these, these make sense, you know. But then again, maybe I'm just speaking as a, you know, confident, heterosexual, white uh, male. Sorry, I was trying to hit as many of those intersectional hot buttons as possible. Here's another one. And this, this one might cause a few people to go, Ooh, wait a minute. Geography has no bearing on our relationship with ultimates, truth, or justice. God doesn't think differently of that person because they live across an imaginary line that separates their country from yours. But I know a lot of people who believe that's the case. I know people who believe that, uh, you know, that's that's of the utmost importance. And they'll give quotes like, well, you know, there are gates at heaven, but hell has no boundaries. And sorry, but that's that's partisan malarkey. Geography has no bearing on our relationship with ultimates, meaning God or truth or justice. Paul Rosenberg writes, Judaism broke geography from God, thus separating all the matters of the inner man from kingdoms and from the outer world in general. This was a fundamental concept, and it set human minds free of many restraints. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Render unto God what is God's. Well, if you believe God is the ultimate creator, then that would put him above Caesar. That would mean even, even what Caesar has is God's. But, you know, some people prefer, uh, you know, they prefer deities they can see, especially those uh, wear the equivalent of the suit and tie and act like, yeah, I'm in charge here. Here's the next one. Humanity is in a long-term familial relationship with the Creator. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, regardless of the Bible's warnings and even because of them, the fundamental connection between the ultimate and mankind is a familial relationship. And this is sometimes shown in surprisingly intimate and touching tones, like this passage from the second chapter of Jeremiah. Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousals, when you went after me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holiness unto the Lord, the first fruits of his increase. All that devour him shall, of, shall offend. I mean, you can poo-poo it if you want. Yeah, it's your imaginary sky friend. 
but there's some pretty cool wisdom found in in Scripture. Here's another principle of Judeo-Christian principles. Co-dominance. Co-dominance is the negation of status in interpersonal relationships. I'm not dominating you. You're not dominating me. We can both be strong and friendly at the same time. Where co-dominance is absent, where people interact on the basis of who is higher or lower, anger festers, compassion fails, grudges are never released, and rivers of energy are wasted in posturing and scheming. Where co-dominance is present, we can spend our time and energy creating actual progress. More than that, co-dominance sets us free to love one another. And from love your neighbor as yourself to God is no respecter of persons, that theme runs throughout Judaism and Christianity. Which brings us to this principle, love for the other. The portrayal of the outsider, the other, as an entity to be despised, has spawned millennia of hate and hundreds of millions of murders. The Judeo-Christian principles, however, directly oppose it. Here's a very early passage. The Lord your God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And here's one from Jesus. You've heard it said, you have heard that it was said, rather, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Paul Rosenberg says, Despite the confusion and error that has always circulated, these principles lie at the core of Judaism and the Christianity that came from it. They've been a tremendously important addition to the world. Their loss will be, would be rather incalculable. I would only add to that, we don't need a government program to keep those principles in place. What we need is the ability to put them into practice at the individual level. That's how you know that they work. And it also sets a good example for others who likewise are looking for something solid on which they can stand. I'll have a link to it in the show notes. You really should subscribe to his email. One final thought here. Um, Yesterday I was spending a little bit of time talking about the importance of being able to see the state for what it is versus what it pretends to be. So I'm going to include a link to another amazing essay on the subject from Matthew Caffrey. And it also illustrates how your freedom is contingent on understanding the difference between seeing the state for what it is versus what it pretends to be. Because public policy always rests on violence or the threat thereof. He asks, why is it so difficult to explain the problems government creates? Despite centuries of logic and evidence, well-intentioned people on both the left and the right still insist that government is the solution to all our woes. And he says we need to better communicate the basic facts about how public policies really work. For example, most people don't know the minimum wage hurts those it's supposed to help. Instead, a price floor on labor is seen as a compassionate response to corporate greed. But a lack of economic education isn't the only problem. He says there's an even simpler issue at stake. Most people don't realize what it means for government to solve a problem to begin with. The realities of government intervention are a mystery to most voters. And there's one ugly fact in particular from which they are safely insulated. Public policy always rests on violence or the threat thereof. 
Now, the uncomfortable, this uncomfortable truth is almost never mentioned in public calls for more government restrictions on economic and social life. Dragging it into the light is vital in making the case for a free society. The problem is that people's thought process about public policy itself, a euphemism for economic control, is incomplete. Usually when people see a problem, they have a general idea of how the world will look when it's been solved. Yet they can't often articulate how to get there from, or get here from here to there, rather. Enter the there should be a law mentality. If there's a problem, government should solve it, and that's that. But how will it be solved? Naturally, there are always policy proposals available. What's missing is a discussion of the laws, of what the laws will mean in practice. Not only are their economic effects misunderstood, the means used to achieve them are misunderstood too. See, political means always involve violence or the threat of violence. And in some ways, this isn't controversial. After all, the modern state is typically defined as a monopoly of violence. But in the policy arena, the intrinsic violence of government is shrouded in the rhetoric of compassion and social justice. As a result, policies like minimum wages, licensing laws, tariffs, and closed borders are just abstractions to most people. They have no human meaning. Making them real can help us all see the state for what it is. So, for example, consider how attitudes might change if the voting public understood that minimum wage laws are threats of violence against relatively poor and uneducated workers trying to make a living. Or that licensing and zoning laws are police threats against aspiring entrepreneurs in poverty-stricken cities. Or that tariffs mean that regulators stand ready with guns, if necessary, to defend the privileges of domestic labor unions from the peaceful trade of developing world entrepreneurs. Or that closed borders mean expanding police power so government agents can break down doors in the dead of night to take parents away from their children. See, in each case, the law is a threat of violent enforcement against Nonviolent actions, obey or go to jail. Resist and face the physical force of the, st- of the state. And there are as many potential items on, their, on this list as there are government interventions. Even without considering their disastrous economic effects, each of them rests on its own form of coercion. And tragically, he says, the violence of these policies is unseen. Making it visible can undermine public policy and make a world of difference for some of the least well-off members of society. I'll have a link to this article by Matthew McCaffrey in the show notes, which you'll find at thebrianheidshow.com. Check it out. Tell a friend. Subscribe to the podcast. If this tickles you just right, consider becoming a monthly sponsor or a monthly donor. The links are there in the show notes to help you do just that. And thank you in advance. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Once again, glad you could join us and our growing audience of wrong thinkers across the country. People ask me sometimes, so can you give me an idea how many people listen to this program, you know, on a regular basis? I can't tell you for sure. And and part of this is a conscious effort. I don't look at the numbers so much. 
because I don't want to be slave to the statistics. Well, you know, we only had this many listens today. I, I can say with confidence that uh, we're, we're in the thousands, possibly tens of thousands of monthly listeners, um, but, I, but I don't know an exact number. And here's why it's not as important to me. I am less concerned about building this broad, huge audience of people everywhere who know who I am. And I'm more concerned with speaking truth and giving encouragement to people who are truly committed to standing up for and claiming their personal liberty, their freedom of conscience. People who want to live their lives knowing that they are secure in their private property, knowing that uh, that free market economics offers them the greatest likelihood of success and prosperity by providing value and voluntary cooperation with their fellow human beings. Now, as you can guess, <laughs> that doesn't describe a whole lot of people these days. Not that everybody's stupid or evil, they're not, but a lot of people are misled. A lot of people have been uh, led to believe that, well, you know, the only legitimate thing is you know, something that's being administered by the government. I don't feel that way. And so I speak the truth as best I understand it, knowing full well, for some people, it's going to be hard, maybe uncomfortable. For some people, they're just going to flat out slam their mind shut and say, yeah, this guy's nuts. Don't even want to listen. But if you are, are really sincere, you value truth more than you value comfort, give it a try. I'm not guaranteeing you're going to find value or that you're going to like what you hear. But I can guarantee this is different than you're going to find in in most shows of this format. Spoken word, current events. Um, I'm much less engaged with the red state, blue state, conspiracies, you know, kind of stuff. And and more about, uh, look, what are the principles at stake? More importantly, what can you and I do at an individual level to claim our birthright? as free individuals. Now, one of the things that uh, that is being used right now has been weaponized and is being used as a bludgeon to beat us into submission is uh, race. And it's, it's a tough thing when somebody comes up and says, well, you know, Brian, because you are a white, cisgendered male, because you are uh, a religious person, you know, you can't even so much as comment on this because you're white privilege means you should shut up and just let everybody else tell you how it is. And the danger that we fall into is uh, if, if, we, if we buy into that narrative, it becomes about defending ourselves. So if I go off on, hey, you know, I'm, I'm a decent guy, I, you know, show me where I've done anything wrong. Give me an example of someplace where I have wronged somebody, where I've engaged in this kind of behavior that, that you could legitimately call me racist. Well, I've learned recently that's not the, the tack you want to take. And it's not because I had to argue with a bunch of people. It's just um, doing some reading and doing some research. I found what I think is, is a pretty good uh, antidote to that, and that is don't ever let it become about you. Instead, you have to, to use the principles that are at stake. So if someone comes to me and says, well, because you're a cisgendered white male, you really have no place to sit here and mansplain to us. And what I can do is turn around and basically play their own rules against them and say, did you just assume my gender? How do you know what I identify at? And, and the funny thing is, more times than not, when you drum up a little bit of that faux indignation, 
You know, who do you think you are in trying to uh, assume how I identify? The rules of the game are they have to backtrack. <laughs> they have to. And if they don't, well, I can see just by looking at your white skin that you are this and you are that. Then it's like, wow, that's, you know, that sounds a lot like something a racist would say. By the color of your skin, I know this about you and I can make this assumption. By the way, I don't recommend getting into arguments with people who are in that mindset. More often than not, there's there's a hurt, scared, angry person beneath that skin that is, I don't know, they're trying to be heard, they're trying to assert themselves, and, and the only way that they can really feel that they are having impact is by getting you to engage and hopefully, in their mind, become angry. Don't play the game. Don't give them the reaction. Don't play defense. Don't apologize. I'm not telling you not to love them. I think you should. I think we should should treat every person we meet as if they are a treasured child of God. Because they are. And I don't care what their circumstance is at the moment. They are beloved by their creator. So if we're going to solve problems here, if we're going to make a difference, we have to do it without bringing more anger into the situation. That is hard to do, especially when you're being accused of vile things and told, we must cancel you and, you know, and you're a fascist on top of it, so I need to punch you in the face. Not recommended. The outcome will not go as you think, and it's it's not going to be pleasant for either one of us, so don't do that. I wanted to talk for a moment, too, about uh, the importance of having some historical perspective because uncertainty is one of the things that, that allows people to get you on the defensive. If they can make you uncertain, I don't know where I stand. I don't know what to think. I don't know what's right. I don't know what's real. What really happened? That's, that's a good way to assert power over you. Well, then I must tell you, and, and I will tell you you are guilty, and you must think this, and you must do this. Kneel and kiss my ring and beg me for forgiveness. I was thinking about this last week as I was watching a couple of clips of the president's uh, remarks about the 1921 Tulsa massacre. Now, interestingly enough, he he made the claim, well, this has been hidden from, you know, society. It's been carefully, uh, you know, kept from anyone's understanding. And I think, not so. Why, <laughs> I seem to recall my, my friend uh, Larry Reed from the Foundation for Economic Education talking about this several years ago. And not wallowing in it, but but pointing out that, you know, there was once upon a time a very prosperous part of Tulsa. It was referred to as Black Wall Street. And what happened there was definitely an example of some of the ugliness that can come from racism and from prejudiced thinking. Truly ugly stuff. The problem is, though, at a time where everything is racist and everything is considered, you know, uh, you know, to be an affront and, you know, everyone's an oppressor unless you're the victim. It's being exploited. And in the case of Joe Biden's remarks, there was a lot of historical um, things that were stated as facts that don't necessarily line up with the facts. I'm going to include in today's show notes an article. Uh, this was written by Alan J. Levine, published on intellectualtakeout.org, about uh, President Biden's rambling three-quarters of an hour address in Tulsa, about what happened in 1921. Now, he says, despite the rambling, Biden's speech offers some interesting insights into his thinking, or perhaps the contemporary cliches that he parrots. He says, in common with many recent commentators, 
Biden described what happened at Tulsa as a race massacre. Now, it's accurate, but it abstracts it from many other race and other riots, particularly common in the 1917 to 1923 era, some of which can be described as massacres, though none seem to have been as bad as Tulsa. Like many others, Biden also described the Tulsa incident as among the worst massacres in our, in our history, congratulating himself and perhaps the rest of us for finally discovering the event. He said, for much too long, the history of what took place was told in silence, cloaked in darkness, but just because history is silent doesn't mean that it did not take place. Well, welcome to, uh, welcome to reality, Mr. President, because there were others who knew about this and had long ago condemned it. But they, weren't, they didn't have to use it for political purposes, so I guess that's the difference between him and the rest. After wallowing at length on the details of some of the disgusting murders, he then curiously rambled on about the destruction of property involved, as though that was practically as significant. After all the blather about history he linked to Tulsa, he, or he linked Tulsa, rather, to the allegedly comparable violence against and oppression of other non-white groups. He took a break from the race obsession to note that the second Ku Klux Klan, founded in 1915, was hostile to others, notably his fellow Catholics, who came to the United States after World War I. We're going to come back to this in a few moments and correct a few historical oversights on the part of Biden and hopefully add to your understanding of what happened, what we can learn from the Tulsa massacre, and how it's been politicized to become just another bludgeon to beat us into submission on uh, critical race theory or whatever else is the uh, popular social imperative these days. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Sharing with you an article from Alan J. Levine, published on intellectualtakeout.org. Biden at Tulsa is a study in historical confusion. And this is not, you know, just to, to lambaste the president. You know, this is not President Potato Head. I do giggle when people call him that, but that's more about his gaffes and less about his uh, his personal character, which I don't know. He's a politician. I just tend to view all politicians as government supremacists, and therefore I, I really don't have much in common with them or much use for whatever it is they have to say. But it's interesting that uh, Biden, when he talked about the the massacre 100 years ago in Tulsa, referred to it as one of the worst massacres in our history. And as uh, Mr. Levine points out, as often happens, history has been turned into a prop for current obsessions. So Tulsa becomes a case of domestic terrorism, curiously bracketed with what happened a few years ago in Charlottesville, where just one person was killed. And contemporary hate crimes against Asians and Jews, even though many of those have been committed by other minority groups or mentally ill people who have we've so humanely turned out into our streets. But all of this is the fault of white supremacists who Biden assured us are the most lethal threat to America, not, Biden tells us, Islamic terrorists. Now, the relative casualty lists of 2001 and the deeds of white racist fanatics would suggest otherwise. 
Mr. Levine says, now we can't be sure just how many people were killed at Tulsa. We may have a better idea when the mass graves are exhumed, but it was certainly at least 40, may have been as many as 300. Although that last number is often misreported as an established fact in the media. Uncertainty about the number of deaths, by the way, is also common in other riots and massacres of the era. So it's a curious point not often discussed, much less explained, that race riots and anti-labor violence, sometimes incredibly bloody, were quite common in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, although crime rates otherwise seem to have been low by later standards. Whatever remains to be found out about Tulsa, it almost certainly was not the biggest massacre in American history, as some suggest. No, that dubious honor belongs to the killings of at least 500 white civilians in Minnesota by the Santee Sioux, during the Dakota War of 1862. So contrary to what Biden suggests, Tulsa was not a big secret, nor could it have been. The news media in 1921 was, by our standards, amazingly decentralized. It consisted of several hundred major newspapers. Any decent-sized city in those days had several papers of differing political allegiances. The New York Times on June 2, 1921, dedicated a page one headline story to Tulsa, estimating 85 people had been killed at that point. An event given this treatment by the nation's greatest newspaper? Yes, that's hardly a secret. Nor was Tulsa forgotten by history any more than the second Ku Klux Klan. Practically any work about the period between world wars mentions the wave of race riots. The most famous book ever written about the era between the end of World War I and the beginning of the Great Depression, Frederick Lewis Allen's Only Yesterday, was a huge bestseller in the 1930s and often reprinted since, and it did not devote much space to race riots because that sort of thing wasn't Allen's cup of tea. Yet despite this, Allen, after describing Chicago in 19 as virtually, 1919 as in virtually in a state of civil war, mentioned Tulsa as another riot of major proportions. So much for silence and cloaking in darkness. Again, this is from Alan J. Levine. There is a link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. So here's a story I wanted to touch on just briefly. Um, This was, uh, you know, I I look around me and I am seeing sanity slowly starting to return. Um, But there's still a lot of folks who are very detached from reality over covid and it really is, is illustrated best by the ejection of golfer John Rahm from the Jack Nicholas Memorial Golf Tournament, which apparently he was decisively leading. Now, John Rahm is the third-ranked professional golfer in the world. He's a former number one, but he was kicked out of Jack Nicholas's Memorial Golf Tournament. This would have been on June 5th by the PGA Tour bureaucracy after shooting a 64, including a hole-in-one, tying the tournament record for 54 holes, he, he had a six-stroke lead, and like other players, had been forced to take daily PCR tests after, after supposedly coming into contact with someone who had tested positive. So he had several negative results, and then, boom, one of those tests showed positive. And they came to him on the course and said, sorry, buddy, you're out of here. He has no symptoms. He's not sick, obviously. Probably stood to win a fair amount of money as well as the prestige, but here's the question. Tom DiLorenzo asks this question on LewRockwell.com. Just think what Rom would have shot if he had not had the plate. What would it have been, a 58, a 59? 
Of course, he no, showed no symptoms whatsoever, so who knows? No word on who that other person was who tested positive or if they have symptoms either. Why would the PGA do this? Because at this point, look, the people he had been in contact with, he'd been in contact with. It's not like, oh, you know, we caught it just in the nick of time before, you know, this could, could spread to anybody. For all they know, it's already spread. I don't know. Maybe I'm seeing this wrong. There's a definite pol- you know, possibility that I'm just seeing this wrong, but it just seems that it's been so politicized and so hyped that I'm sure the PGA, in an effort to you know, appear woke, in order to appear sensitive and responsible or whatever, whatever people tell themselves when they overreact in the name of COVID, felt like we just have to do this. Tom DeLorenzo says, politics is a cancer on every corner of society, even golf, and it needs to be eradicated. The Biden bootlicking PGA and its woke corporate sponsors should be boycotted by all golf fans who wish to live in a free society instead of the Stalinism of the Great Reset, Build Back Better crowd. I think it is a reasonable assumption, by the way, that it was it was politics that motivated this, or at least a desire to to remain in good standing and in good favor with uh, those of the political realm. You could see the disappointment, though, on John Rahm's face. I don't, I don't know if he was in tears, but nobody could fault him for being in tears as these, you know, PGA officials came to him and informed him, I'm sorry, but we've got to kick you out of this tournament, you know, when he was decisively leading it. Where does it end? Can I tell you what my concern is? I think right now we're seeing things relax. I mean, it's it's funny in some ways. You know, I, I notice, uh, you know, certain news sources that have really built, they've, they've staked their reputation on, we have to report this in the scariest possible way to make sure people know how, how dangerous this is and how many people died of COVID. And, you know, and it's like, I understand. Nobody's denying that there's a real virus out there and it had, you know, bad effect on a certain demographic. At the same time, 99% of the people who actually caught it survived, did just fine. Some have had lasting effects. The vast majority got over it. But it's just sad that there there are those who feel like, well, we've got to hang on to this. And so we see a little bit of relaxing right now. Masks are coming off. You know, some people are still enforcing mask policies. California, interestingly enough, Gavin Newsom has, has re-upped the state of emergency. He's going to keep it going. Why? Well, my friend, because power is a good thing. And a little more power is a great thing, you know, so got to keep what you have. All right, that's my concern. My concern is that uh, we're going to see some relaxation. People are going to get complacent and feel like, all right, we're back. We're good as the summer months progress. And then come fall and winter when cold and flu season comes back, and I suspect that COVID will be back again and there will be an increase in cases. I think you're going to see the uh, the lockdown artists pushing harder than ever to lock it down, even harder than before, even though the lockdowns had no impact whatsoever on slowing the spread of the virus. The question is, where will you stand? What will your line in the sand be? Because you better get it figured out now. If you wait until then, it will be too late.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. By the way, quick shout out to our sponsors, including HSLAmmo.com, also pure-light.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. I don't know if you heard the interview I had with uh, Dr. Shannon Brooks, but just had that uh, on had him on the program uh, yesterday, actually, and it would be worth your time to check it out. It's in the show archives. You can also follow the links I supply in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Always, always great to have you with us. Here's something that, uh, you know, we, we talk about reveling in wrong think. All right, I got one for you. I, I, I tell you, this, this is one you want to use carefully because it will make some people's eyes spin around in their sockets and maybe even steam shoot out of their ears if you're lucky. So current political orthodoxy holds that voting is so good, it is so sacred, so essential to our democracy that the voting age actually needs to be lowered. I think 16 is the the current uh, age that that is being suggested. Well, we should drop this to 16 and you know, have these young people vote uh, while they're still very much a part of, you know, the public school system. Well, JK Balsers Balserson has kind of an interesting take. He says uh, actually instead of lowering the voting age, what we should do is raise the voting age. Now, you know, tell me what's what's your knee jerk reaction? I guarantee for a lot of people it would be like, whoa, that sounds so anti-democratic. But I want you to hear out his, uh, his justification for why that would actually be a good thing. This is published on the Foundation for Economic Education's website. This is actually published uh, a couple of years ago, back on March 3rd, 2019. Don't lower the voting age, raise it. And, and the subtitle here, Liberty Requires Limiting Majority Rule. Limited suffrage could be a part of it. Ooh, we may have to revisit that uh, 19th Amendment. (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Put down the rocks. So going to the article, J.K. Balterson says, On an otherwise perfectly normal Monday in mid-February, a bill was introduced in the Oregon legislature to lower the voting age from 18 as required maximum by the uh, 26th Amendment to the Constitution to 16. And he says the bill made headlines and was, among other places, discussed on the Today Show. Now, there's been a slight beginning trend to lower the voting age in Europe and elsewhere. Austria lowered the general election's voting age to 16 in 2007. In Malta, a bill was passed just last year to do the same thing. Again, keep in mind this article was written in uh, 2019. Estonia has a voting age of 16 for local elections. In Europe, the voting age varies from 16 to 25, the most common being 18, as elsewhere around the world. The voting age for the Italian Senate is 25, where the eligibility age is 40. Now, he says in his own home country of Norway, there has been a campaign for some years to lower the voting age from 18 to 16, and it has been unsuccessful thus far. Constitutional amendments in Norway need to be introduced in one parliamentary term by approximately a year before the next election, then voted on in the next term requiring a two-thirds majority. That sounds complicated. 
A constitutional bill to lower the voting age failed in January for the fourth consecutive term. Experiments with lowering the voting age to 16 to limited rather to a small number of municipalities were conducted in 2011 and 2015 during local elections. And according to the Norwegian Institute for Social Research, the results were mixed according to their evaluation reports. He says in Parliament, supporting or support rather for lowering the voting age is currently at 13%. According to Norwegian elections and democracy researcher Johannes Berg, support among the public for lowering the voting age to 16 typically lies around 25%. An opinion poll conducted in January indicated support for a lower voting age was at 20%, whereas the support for a higher voting age was measured at 23%. Uh oh. <laughs> and with all this beginning drive to lower the voting age, as if there's some law of gravity in politics that whatever has limits must come down to no limit at all, in other words, zero, perhaps he says we should start considering raising the voting age. Now, here's how he makes the case. First of all, he appeals to what classical liberals have had to say about suffrage. He says, after all, Friedrich August von Hayek had an interesting proposal of letting people vote once in a lifetime. In other words, at age 45, for candidates to the Legislative Assembly on the, of their own age for a term of 15 years. The Legislative Assembly was in von Hayek's idea to be elected with one-fifteenth of the Assembly each year, such that it would consist of members of 45 to 60 years of age. Limiting and expanding suffrage, he says, has been an important part of the long development of democracy. The Frenchman Benjamin Constant is an example of a classical liberal who wanted limited, limited suffrage. The Englishman John Stuart Mill proposed giving extra votes to the well-informed. More recently, Brian Kaplan and later Ilya Solman have been arguing that democracies produce uninformed and irrational outcomes simply because it's irrational for a single voter to spend very much time studying relevant issues, given the very limited impact of a single vote in a mass democracy. Jason Brennan recently took it to the next level by proposing replacing democracy with some sort of epistocracy. Rule of the informed, starting small with limited experiments. Now he asks, should we be reversing the apparent one-way development of democracy? Given that the epoch of unlimited suffrage and mass democracy hasn't exactly shown impressive results when it comes to limiting politics, government, and power, we should at the very least be open to it as an option. So why raise the voting age? Well, he says, if we look at the voting age, adjusting it is certainly a very broad and general measure. Indeed, any general voting age, in other words, not having individual requirements, will be based on an evaluation of people as a group, age group in this case, and not as individuals. And it's also important to keep in mind that when it comes to voting, it is the number of votes that counts. The one single vote hardly matters at all. Arguments for raising the voting age as for lowering it will necessarily be less fine-tuned than those more individually oriented measures. Now, he says, I've launched the idea that the Norwegian voting age should be raised to 25. And I've had the opportunity so far to argue for this position twice on Norwegian national radio. The main argument is that there should be greater requirements for taking part in decisions for society as a whole or in deciding for others if you will, rather than taking full responsibility for one's own affairs. The anarchist position would be that such lording over others shouldn't take place at all. But in any case, more responsibility would be better than less for both anarchists and minarchists. 
Now, these requirements involve maturity and life and work experience, but they also involve having paid an accumulative share of taxes before receiving loads of free stuff from the government and incentivizing more responsibility. In fact, he says the latter is more relevant the more so-called generous the welfare state is, but it's still relevant in most countries, even the United States, where so-called democratic socialism is apparently growing in popularity. He says, we hear the argument that young people need to be involved in politics. So a low voting age, in other words, letting the young vote, is a good way of including them. But he says, no, they don't really need to be involved in politics. A free society with limitations on power and low involvement of government in society needs to have less such involvement. Young people should be involved in their own lives, not politics. This isn't just fringe opinion. He says, as mentioned, there was an opinion poll in Norway in January showing 23% support for a higher voting age. Now, polling for support for a higher voting age is not very common, as the unawareness of any such polls of prominent Norwegian elections and democracy researcher Johannes Berg should bear witness. But he says the January poll was conducted by a polling agency upon his request, and the respondents were asked what they would set the voting age to if they themselves could freely set it with no limiting or guiding alternatives. Hence, it has been shown that there is likely considerable support for raising the voting age. So it's, it's not a fringe position. And he says, I would encourage more such polling, not taking the one-way development for granted. So let's go the other way rather than what those Oregon legislators are suggesting. Given how the reach and size of government have grown as the franchise has been expanded, there's reason to believe that there is empirical evidence that people have been voting themselves other people's money. Hence, looking at ways of reducing that franchise should at least be explored. Raising the voting age, he says, should certainly be seriously considered. I know that would be a hard sell, depending on the crowd you're taking it to. But uh, J.K. Balterson has, I think he makes some sense here. Look, I think about when I was voting at age 18, and, and I remember casting my first vote, but I also, this is one thing I remember with just a little twinge of shame. When I cast my first vote, it was purely based on, well, my parents are voting this way, so this is how I'm going to vote. I really didn't put any serious thought into what I was doing or who I was voting for. It was kind of a almost a conditioned response. Well, you know, they're voting Republican and they're decent people, and I guess I'll just vote Republican so I can be a decent person like my folks. Now, as it turns out, that vote was for Ronald Reagan, and frankly, I don't regret it, but (laughs) let's just say that uh, my days of standing in the voting booth wondering, hmm, who is this candidate? What is this issue? They're far behind me. I wonder if that's the case for most voters. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. You know, I'm really not trying to to shake your faith in uh, democracy. I mean, after all, it is kind of the de facto religion of our society right now. But I would definitely like people to think a little more critically about uh, what exactly does that mean? It's a pretty nebulous term. And, and you know, we're, we're told, well, you know, but elections, that is the high sacrament of our civic religion. And we sure treat it that way. But uh, I have to wonder 
If, was there ever a time when our elections didn't uh, resemble a demolition derby that essentially dooms both sides? Because <laughs> that's the that's the feel I have right now. And I've been I've been watching, paying pretty close attention for about the last thirty years. Um, before that, yeah. I, I wouldn't say I was paying close attention, but, you know, I definitely participated. Hey, after all, there's those stickers aren't going to attach themselves saying that I voted. Saw an interesting essay from James Bovard, who is one of my favorite commentators on the passing scene. And he has a pretty good take here on what happens when, uh, when we turn the elections into this immense power struggle. In other words, it's not about... Uh, it's not about will we have fair and honest representation in government at whatever level. Instead, it becomes about we must have the power, or those who have the power will use that power to destroy us. That's why you're hearing a lot of uh, accusations of treason right now surrounding you know what, what's er- errantly being called the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. Look, I don't, I don't mean to be rude, but I'm honest when I tell you I, I have much more to fear from the people who work inside the Capitol, the ones with suits, the ones with titles, the ones with agendas, than, than any threat posed by the people who actually forced their way in and misbehaved by putting their feet up on the desks of certain representatives. But we're hearing these cries of treason. Oh, and, and it's interesting, too. Um, one, of the, one of the people who was accused of um, bear, using bear spray on uh, police officers in Portland last summer, this is one of the BLM rioters, was almost immediately bailed out of jail and is still awaiting trial. Two people who have been accused of of, uh, allegedly spraying Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick, who died of a stroke a couple of days after the, the Capitol Hill riot, they are being charged with uh, all kinds of, of felony, diff, you know, just, they're being charged with treason and told that, you know, they and others who are being held in solitary confinement in a special jail in Washington, D.C., even a $15 million bail package put together by their families was ignored by the judge because I just can't believe the threat that they pose to democracy. Different treatment for different people, huh? Based on their politics? Yeah, there's no way that could go wrong. I want you to hear James Bovard's take on Will Treason Mania Destroy America? Just a couple of excerpts from his essay. He says, at the start of the Biden era, America is being torn apart by more allegations of treason than at any time since the Civil War. Historian Henry Adams observed a century ago that politics has always been the systematic organization of hatreds. And few things spur hatred more effectively than tarring all political opponents as traitors. The Founding Fathers carved the Constitution in light of the horrific political abuses that had proliferated in England in prior centuries. That's why there was a narrow definition of treason in the Constitution. Quote, Treason against the United States shall consist only in levying war against them or in adhering to their enemies, giving aid and giving them aid and comfort. No person shall be convicted of treason unless on the testimony of two witnesses to the same overt act or on confession in open court. End quote. That's it. That's what the Constitution says. Now, after the end of Reconstruction, treason charges became relatively rare in American politics. Wars were probably the biggest propellants, but with anyone who opposed American intervention abroad being tagged with the scarlet T, but by the late 1960s, when the futility of the Vietnam War was becoming clear, 
treason charges had largely lost their political clout. General Alexander Haig, who later became Richard Nixon's last White House chief of staff, denounced the Pentagon Papers as devastating, a security breach of the greatest magnitude of anything I've seen. It's treasonable. But the Nixon administration protests failed to sway the Supreme Court to block the New York Times from publishing the secret official records of decades of U.S. government deceit on Indochina. Now, he says, fortunately, unfortunately, rather, the political exploitation of the 9-11 attacks included reviving treason accusations against anyone who didn't cheer on George W. Bush's promise to rid the world of evil. On December 6, 2001, Attorney General John Ashcroft informed the Senate Judiciary Committee, those who scare peace-loving people with phantoms of lost liberty, he says, to them, my message is this, your tactics only aid terrorists for they erode our national unity and give ammunition to America's enemies, end quote. Now, at that point, Bush had already suspended habeas corpus, and his underlings were busy sabotaging laws limiting federal surveillance of American citizens. But regardless of how many civil liberties were actually destroyed, critics were traitors. Oh, I remember those times well. I was one of the people being called a traitor. Now, in the run-up to 2016, uh, while Bush was rehabilitated by mainstream media in recent years as a reward for criticizing Donald Trump, his 2004 re-election campaign relied on tacit treason accusations to tarnish Democrats, liberals, even a few libertarians. At the 2004 Republican National Convention, keynote speaker Democratic Senator Zell Miller implied that political opposition was treason. Quote, Now at the same time young Americans are dying in the sands of Iraq and the mountains of Afghanistan, our nation is being torn apart and made weaker because of the Democrats' manic obsession to bring down our commander-in-chief. End quote. Now there was no evidence that criticism of Bush's foreign policy was ripping America asunder. But trumpeting that accusation, says James Bovard, made Bush critics appear a pox on the land. You probably remember a lot of this. And then, let's move forward. After Barack Obama was elected in 2008, treason allegations simmered down, except for occasional allegations that Obama was a secret Muslim scheming to impose Sharia law on America. Former NSA employee Edward Snowden's leak of NSA documents was the biggest treason boomlet of that era. Numerous congressmen called for Snowden to be charged with treason though the Founding Fathers neglected to include embarrassing the government in the Constitution's definition of treason. Whoops. (laughs) House Intelligence Committee Chairman Mike Rogers and former NSA Chief Michael Hayden publicly joked about putting Snowden on a government kill list. But the Snowden uproar was a kerfuffle compared to the Pandora's box opened by the 2016 presidential campaign. Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton repeatedly effectively asserted that Republican nominee Donald Trump was a Russian tool betraying the nation. Now, he goes into some detail about treason in the White House, and after Trump's surprise victory in 2016, uh, treason became the coin of the realm for denigrating political opposition. I'm going to cut ahead to the chase because we've got just a couple of minutes here. The bottom line here, says James James Bovard, Any federal attempt to expunge political dissent in America with brute military force and a drastic curtailment of civil liberties will very likely provoke a civil war. But that would be the end of current trends of presuming that political opponents are traitors who must be exterminated. So while Democratic members of Congress and some Biden officials are comforted by the thousands of National Guard troops now occupying Washington at their behest, 
they would be unwise to presume those troops would obey orders to scourge their countrymen in every nook of the land. He says, perhaps the ultimate cause of the proliferation of treason accusations is that politicians have captured far too much control over Americans' lives. The more power politicians seize, the more unhinged political rhetoric becomes. He says American politics is becoming increasingly toxic because presidents nowadays are elective dictators. Rather than a process of selecting a chief executive who will uphold the Constitution and enforce the laws, elections nowadays confer a license to run amok over the lives and property of practically anyone who falls under federal sway. Washington has amassed so much power that the vast majority of Americans no longer trust Washington. James Bovard says the surest recipe for curtailing political vitriol is to reduce political power. So elections are not demolition derbies that doom losing sides. Thomas Jefferson in 1799 offered the ideal that can rescue America from strife today. In questions of power, let no more be heard of confidence in man, but bind him down from mischief by the chains of the Constitution. And if presidents and members of Congress choose to openly scorn their oaths of office and constitutional constraints on their power, well, many Americans would consider that to be treason. I like it. <laughs> I think he's got a good point. They're they're saying treason a lot, but I think uh, they, being the politicians, the ones who are trying to gin up, you know, ideas that what happened on January 6th was an insurrection. But I think they're engaging in some pretty treasonous activity. And I think that uh, we should consider strongly whether we should fall in line or withdraw our consent. That's a personal choice, but I think that's the one we should be looking at. This is The Brian Hyde Show.